Investing Compass is brought to you by Morningstar Australia. We'll run through the fundamentals of investing, take a deep dive of concepts and offer practical explanations, tools and resources that will allow you to invest confidently. The information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Uh, We're going to start by talking about Melbourne Cup Day. Okay, that's an interesting place to start. So I missed it. So I was on Lord Howe on vacation, mm-hmm. which was very I isolated. I saw a turtle. I did. I did. And I went scuba diving and I saw a turtle. So that was exciting. But yeah, I missed the race. So did you put a bet on? Did you win? I didn't put a bet on, but I did put a bet on um, on the presidential election. It's my like once in a, every four years bet. Um, and where, how'd you go? Did you win? I, I won one, which was obviously that um, Biden would become president, but one's still hanging in the balance. So, um, also placed a bet on Georgia. Okay. Going to the Dems. And Interesting. That, I'll, I'll find that out in probably June next year. So. Yeah, they're hand counting all like five million ballots or something. So, yeah, good luck with that one. Yeah. Um, so, while most of the country were downing a few too many SCOEs, there was an announcement by the RBA that interest rates have been cut again to um, 0.1%, which is the lowest in history. They also announced a $100 billion quantitative easing program. Uh, so the question we're going to try and answer today is what does all this mean and how should we think about interest rates and monetary policy as investors? All right. So, yeah, we have a lot to cover today. So we're going to start talking about just what is the RBA and central banks in general? What is monetary policy and what do central banks hope to achieve with it? Then we can talk about what's happened with interest rates, so a little interest rate history, and then the impact they have on asset values and how we should react as investors to this news and sort of the continuing news of historically low interest rates. That is a lot to cover. So let's get cracking with the RBA. And so what is the RBA and what do central banks do? Yeah. So the easiest way to do is we can just quote from the RBA website. And they define their duty as um, contributing to the stability of currency, full employment, and the economic prosperity and welfare of the Australian people. And the way that they do this is they use monetary policy. Yeah, and monetary policy involves setting the interest rate on overnight loans in the money market, and this is a cash rate. So the cash rate influences other interest rates in the economy, affecting the behavior of borrowers and lenders, um, economic activity, and ultimately the rate of inflation. Monetary policy can be broadly classified as either expansionary or contractionary. Um, so expansionary, expansionary monetary policy is undertaken when the economy is not doing very well, and it's meant to support the overall growth of the economy, including increasing rates of employment. Contractionary monetary policy is meant to control an overheating economy and prevent inflation. Yeah, so basically monetary policy is using interest rates to try to influence the economy. And One big question is, how does a central bank actually control interest rate levels? And the way they do this is through something called open market operations. So open market operations just refers to the purchase and sale of government securities, short-term government securities, in order to expand or contract the money in the supply in the banking system. And that has an influence on interest rates. So like any other bank, central banks have a balance sheet. And they can expand that balance sheet when they're looking to inject money into the economy and keep interest rates low. And they do that by purchasing securities on the open market, which creates demand. 
And then they can do the opposite as well. So they can sell securities into the market off of their balance sheet when they're looking to restrict the money supply. And that's creating supply. Yeah, that's right. And interest rates can be thought of as the price of money. And so when you're borrowing to pay, you pay the price to get access to the money. And when you are a saver, you get paid the price to provide your money to someone else. All right. So central banks, there's a lot that we can say about central banks and monetary policy, but hopefully that's enough of foundation for us to move on to interest rates. So I promised we were going to talk about the history of interest rates. Very fascinating. You know, it's what I talk about in the pubs all the time. Um, but we mentioned at the beginning that interest rates are at a historical low. So you can imagine that they've fallen quite dramatically over the years. So if we look at the Australian cash rate that you referenced at the beginning, Shani, um, the one that was actually lowered on Melbourne Cup Day to 0.1%, if we go back to 1990, it was at 14%. So that's been a long-term and steady drop in rates. Yeah, and these drops in interest rates in Australia have mirrored what has happened around the world. Uh, So central banks have dropped interest rates in response to a number of different economic events. But let's take a look at more recent history and start with the GFC. Mark, do you want to talk about central bank responses to the event? Yeah, no, absolutely. Since I know you were about four years old when the GFC (laughs) occurred, I think it's good for me to cover it. Um, Yeah, as you said, like the GFC was a pretty traumatic event, and there were a lot of worries that the global financial system was going to seize up and potentially collapse. And in response, we saw, you know, a pretty dramatic response from um, governments, but also from central banks. And so obviously what central banks did is they reduced interest rates. They're trying to stimulate the economy with that. But they also intervened more forcefully to keep this financial system operating. So we talked about open market operations. So that's the purchase and sale of short-term government bonds. Well, during the GFC, they also started to buy longer-term government bonds in a program called quantitative easing the one that you referenced at the beginning that the RBA is now doing. And in the U.S., at least, beyond that, the Federal Reserve, which is a U.S. central bank, also started buying mortgage-backed securities. So those are simply mortgages that are securitized and sold off as bonds. And the idea there was by buying them that they would try to support the U.S. housing market where the whole GFC started. Yeah, and these previously unheard of interventions have continued in the monetary policy response to COVID. Um, So we heard Scott Morrison and many world leaders talking about putting the economy in hibernation until we get through the virus-related disruption to the economy. Well, in order for companies to hibernate, it was important that they had access to funds to keep their companies running during this hibernation. Um, And this once again led to extraordinary interventions by central banks. Do you remember when we practiced this and I made a joke about hibernation and then you said it was a dad joke? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to do that <laughs> because you insulted me so much. I will. Uh, I'll ignore that. But anyway, yeah, you're right, Johnny. So, you know, what central banks have done is um, really expanded the number of bonds that they purchase. So I talked about mortgage-backed securities before, but in the U.S. in response to COVID, the Federal Reserve went so far as to actually purchase fixed interest ETFs. Um, and the idea there is obviously those are pooled investment vehicles. It was just a quick way to kind of keep interest rates as low as possible. And they certainly purchase a lot of corporate bonds as well. So we're not here to debate central bank policy. We're really helped to, we're here to help investors navigate this environment. So Shani, why don't we go through, or why don't you go through how interest rates impact the value of different investments? And then we can talk about what investors should do in this environment. Yeah, sure. So um, the first impact this has had on investors is the obvious one. And the return on cash and the return on fixed interest is really low. Um, So let's start with what investors should do with cash. 
Cash can play multiple roles in investment portfolios. Um, but before we talk about investing, let's talk about why you need to hold cash in general. Having an emergency fund is critical. Um, we're going to do a future episode on getting started with investing. Um, but before you start taking the plunge into investing, it's really important to have an emergency fund. The amount you need in um, your emergency fund has always been prescribed as three to six months of wages, um, but three to six months of living expenses should suffice. This depends on your situation, though, um, and of course, what sorts of insurances and protections you have as well. Yeah, and I think you know it, it is it is important to say that a concept of emergency fund is a real struggle for a lot of people. So um, there are stats that come out periodically in the MeBank Household Financial Comfort Report. And the latest report that I looked at that came out in July indicated that while saving rates have certainly increased during COVID, 21% of households in Australia have less than $1,000 in savings, and the average is about $300. So sort of regardless of the level of interest rates, you do need to remember that this emergency fund is important. Um, but let's talk about cash in your actual investment portfolio. Yeah, naturally, cash is really unattractive since you're barely earning a return, um, but it can still pay, play a part in portfolios for many investors. Cash is, of course, really important if you're planning on making withdrawals from your portfolio. Uh, so we've talked about how volatility isn't the enemy of long-term investors. Um, but if you need to take money out, the last thing you want to do is have to sell equity investments at a really low price, um, especially after the market has fallen. So if you have withdrawals coming up, it's really important to hold cash as well. Yeah, and I think there's one final point when we're talking about cash in portfolios, and there is some controversy around this, and that's really the idea that you hold cash in your portfolio to take advantage of opportunities. So when there are lower prices, so namely when markets fall, if you do have cash, you can then invest it. So I will say from a personal standpoint, it's something that I've been doing over the past couple of years. So you know, I did manage to build up a pretty meaningful cash position my portfolio. And I was just in general sort of worried about valuation levels in, uh, in global markets. And then, of course, this would have been the perfect year for that because there was that large fall in markets in February and March. And, you know, obviously I'm an investing genius. So what did I do during those, uh, during that big market fall? I only put about 10% of the cash that I had in. Um, so it is, uh, it is, Intellectually, I certainly support this approach, but it is really important to acknowledge that this is a difficult thing to do from a behavioral standpoint of picking when to invest with, uh, with the markets falling. And, you know, I think it's also important to say that for many younger investors, if you have a really long time period to invest, the best move is probably just to develop a plan and keep plugging away and saving and investing as you keep earning every paycheck. But anyway, Shani, Talked about cash. How about bonds? Tell us about bonds. All right. So the next category we want to cover is fixed interest. Um, bonds have the most direct relationship between interest rates and asset prices. So bond prices move inversely to interest rates. So if interest rates go down, um, bond prices go up. And if interest rates go up, then bond prices will go down. Yeah. And so that's right. So obviously, we talked about this period where rates have fallen so much. And what that's done is really create a great environment for bonds. So, and the timing of this, remember the timing. So this is from May 1st. So we still, we had that large fall in equity markets in February and March of this year. There was a little bit of a recovery, but since May 1st, there's been a huge recovery. But on May 1st, if you look back on a 20 year period, um, we're talking sort of US returns now, 
bonds actually outperformed stocks. So on that May 1st date, the S&P 500 had a 5.4% average return over the 20-year period. And then there were all sorts of fixed interest um, categories that beat that return. So long-term treasury bonds, U.S. treasury bonds, 8.3% return. Long-term investment-grade corporate bonds, 7.7% average return over that period. And junk bonds or high-yield bonds, 6.5% average return. So a lot of circumstances where bonds outperform stocks. And that's because what, what you said, that bond prices move inversely to interest rates and interest rates were falling. Yeah, so as um, fixed income investors, bond prices are very dependent on interest rates. So the question now is, where do we go from here as investors? Um, well, as individual investors, there are a couple of different ways that we can invest in bonds. We can use them for income, which basically means that we hold them to maturity and we collect the interest payments and then hopefully get our principal at maturity. Um, realistically, though, most people don't buy individual bonds. And right now, nobody is investing in bonds for income. Most investors access fixed interest through an ETF or through a fund, and that's mainly because it's difficult to access individual bonds. Um, now, there are a lot of complications that go into the pricing of bonds. There is the shape of the yield curve. So, Mark, do you want to maybe explain what a yield curve is? Yeah, I can, I can give it my best shot. So, basically, a yield curve is the line that plots yield, so the interest rates on different bonds that have, and we're talking about equal credit quality here, but the interest rate on different bonds at different mature dates. So a kind of typical yield curve would curve upwards. So that means longer term bonds have higher interest rates. And that does make sense, right? If you are loaning your money for a longer period of time and it's locked up, you should get longer interest rates. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the yield curve, um, but it is important to remember that longer term bonds versus short term bonds will have different price changes based on changes in interest rates. And this measure is called duration. So duration is a measurement of a bond's interest rate risk that considers a bond's maturity, um, its yield, coupon, and call features. So duration is published by bond funds and ETFs. It's listed in years, but that is a percentage change um, in the price of the fund or ETF, given a 1% change in interest rates. So if interest rates go up by 1%, the price of the fund or ETF will drop by the same percent as the duration. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we talked about this before in a previous podcast, but the bond market is a place where active management has traditionally worked pretty well. Um, so going back and looking at the Morningstar um, active passive barometer report, which is measuring if active managers have outperformed their passive counterparts, 40 to 60 percent of low cost active bond funds have beaten their passive equivalent over a 20-year period. So that does mean that if you find a good manager that's able to navigate these changing interest rate environments, there is a possibility or a potential for them to outperform the index returns. But either way, where we are right now, you're facing a pretty bleak environment as a fixed income investment manager. So interest rates can't really go much lower. So you're unlikely to get a lot of pre a price appreciation and you're earning almost nothing in income. So central banks have been quite transparent about the fact that rates will not be going up anytime soon. But if you start investing in longer term bonds, it's more likely than not that rates will go up over the course of the lifetime that you hold that bond. Well, Mark, we've covered cash, bonds, and now we need to move on to equities. The level of interest rates undoubtedly has an impact on equity valuations and returns. And this impact is a little more nuanced and multifaceted. So let's start with the sub substitution effect. 
We've talked about how a low interest rate environment can impact the returns that you make on both cash and bonds. And this is particularly true if you are trying to generate income from your portfolio. So when investors are faced with such bleak returns from other asset classes, they naturally substitute stocks for bonds and cash. And that makes sense. There is a certain level of returns needed to achieve goals. So when prospects are looking dire, investors look at riskier asset classes. Yeah. And, you know, I think this has been particularly pronounced when you start looking at income. And many investors have almost out of necessity turned to dividend paying stocks as interest rates have continued their march downwards. But another really important influence in the way that interest rate in interest rates impact the way that investors value equities is just that. How do you value an equity? So we're going to get a little bit technical here, Shani, if that's okay. And really, the value that you get, and we talked about this before as well, the value you get from investing equities is the future cash flows are generated by the company that you own. And so that's a good place to start. Yeah. So, um, a key concept that we covered during that first podcast that we did on share investing was that in order to value those cash flows, we needed to discount them back to present day. And that's because the value of a dollar today is worth more than one in the future. And because of this, we need to discount those future cash flows that we estimate the company will earn. And this is the place where interest rates come into play in terms of the valuation. So the the number that you discount back these future cash flows by is called the weighted average cost of capital. And you can think of the cost of capital as a price that a company pays for financing. So this can be debt financing by issuing bonds, or it can be equity financing by issuing more shares. And the reason that we use the weighted average cost of capital to discount those future cash flows is because it represents the minimum rate that a company needs to achieve with any investments based on those financing costs. Weighted average cost of capital is a mouthful. I know you prefer to say whack, but I laugh every time you do. <laughs> I know, I know. So I've stopped that. So aren't you happy that I'm doing that? I am. This is, a, this is the first time ever that we've done this and we practiced. So the practice removed my dad joke and now I'm not saying whack, I'm saying weighted average cost of capital. So it's worthwhile, right? I think it was, yeah. So um, this may be getting a little complex for new investors, so let's try and simplify this. Companies fund new projects by raising capital. For instance, they could borrow money. So if a company wants to open a new factory or wants to hire a whole team of new people to launch a new product line, they can go out and borrow money by issuing bonds. The company is only going to do this if they think they're able to earn a return that's higher than the cost of financing. All right. So the cost of financing, as we said, is what investors use to discount back those future cash flows. And, you know, that is the minimum amount of return that a company needs. So that's why we're using that. So a very large component of the weighted average cost of capital is the level of interest rates, because on the debt side of things, that equals the cost of capital. So lower interest rates mean a lower weighted average cost of capital, which means that we're discounting future cash flows back by a smaller number. So basically what that means is with a lower discount rate, those future cash flows are worth more. And that makes equity prices worth more. So that was a lot of finance terms and potentially a lot of new concepts for many investors. But if there is one takeaway, it should be that lower interest rates make equities more valuable. It increases demand for equities through the substitution effect that we discussed earlier, and it makes the cash flows um, that companies generate more valuable. Yeah, and this makes sense, right? Because lowering the cost of capital and 
basically the return that companies need to invest in new projects is the whole point of central banks lowering interest rates in the first place. Their goal is to stimulate growth in the economy, and that comes from companies investing in expansion. So companies over time have seen a pretty dramatic reduction in their borrowing costs as debt has gotten cheaper and cheaper, and the amount of interest that they have to pay has gotten lower and lower. So as investors, that means there's more cash available for the companies that we own as equity investors. And the access to this cheap capital has one more impact on the valuation of companies. We've, to- we've talked about cheaper capital le- leading to investment and expansion, but the other thing that it does allow is companies to go out there and acquire other companies. So typically when a company is acquired, it will be done at a premium to whatever the share price is, and that benefits investors as well as makes all companies more valuable. We've certainly seen a large increase in M&A activity during um, this prolonged period of low interest rates. Yeah. So the question, of course, is what is the size of the impact that, as you said, this long period of falling interest rates, what's the size of the impact it's had on equity valuations? Well, it's not quite as easy to quantify this with share prices as it is with bond prices, which, as you explained, is measured in duration. So the real reason for that is, if you think about it, cash flows of a bond are set. And the cash flows of equities in the future are are an estimate. So we can't exactly calculate it, but there have been, and there have been a lot of studies that have gone back and they've tried to look at the effect. But one simple way to do this is to look at the price to earnings ratio of shares. Yeah. And the price to earnings ratio, um, also known as a PE ratio, is a ratio of a company's share price to the company's earnings per share. And so the ratio is used for valuing companies and to find out whether they are overvalued or undervalued. Price to earnings is a relative valuation technique, and um, what that means is that you're comparing two things. So this shouldn't be confused with the way you value an equity because it is a way of, to compare different companies or time periods in a standardized way. Yeah, so exactly. So we can look at P ratios over this period, right? We talked about sort of this period from 1990 to uh, to today. So in 1990, the price earnings ratio um, for Australian stocks was 13.6. So that means an investor was basically willing to pay 13.6 times the amount that a company earned with the share price. So this year, a lot of stuff has happened, as we've talked about, and earnings have gone up and down, mostly down for a lot of different companies. And you know, we do believe that at Morningstar, these COVID-related restrictions and the impact that it's had on revenue from uh, from companies will go away eventually. So I think the important thing to do is step back pre-COVID just to keep the data a little bit cleaner. So if we go back to January 2020, the P ratio was 20.6 for Aussie stocks. So 20.6 compared to 13.6 in 1990. Now, we can't equate all of that gain or all of that increase in valuation level just to interest rates, but I think we both need to acknowledge, and all of us need to acknowledge, that they did play a role in the valuations increasing by over 50% on Aussie stocks. So as investors, the million-dollar question is, where do we go from here? Let's start with interest rates. Central banks around the world have indicated that it's going to be years before they anticipate raising interest rates. Uh, So the traditional drivers of interest rate rises have been worries that the economy was overheating and the desire to get in front of any increases in inflation. 
The Federal Reserve in the U.S. seemingly took this off the table in August by releasing a rather extraordinary statement saying that they would just allow inflation to run higher than the standard 2% target um, before raising interest rates. So this just reinforces the view that we're going to be in a low interest rate environment for a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, I think as investors, we don't necessarily need to prepare ourselves yet for rising interest rates, but I think we need to acknowledge that we're unlikely to get any positive impacts from continued falls in interest rates, at least not anytime soon. So it's likely that bond returns will go down in the future in comparison to what they've been in the past, and that equity returns will not get as much of a boost from the extra valuation kick of lowering interest rates. And of course, we also need to prepare to not get much of anything from cash. Yeah, I think it's really important to acknowledge that most investors today have come of age between the mid-80s and now. None of us really have had any experience investing in a rising interest rate environment or in an environment with high inflation. The biggest takeaway is that returns on all sorts of asset classes, from fixed income to equities to housing prices, have been inflated by falling interest rates. So one thing that people like myself with a long investment horizon should assume is that rates of return will be lower, which means that we should project lower returns returns. This just really means we need to save more. And if these lower returns don't materialize, saving more will just mean more money in the future. All right, Shani. So we've, we've covered a lot. We started talking about a turtle, <laughs> Melbourne Cup, um, dad jokes, me saying whack. Um, but let's try to sum this up and, uh, and kind of come up with three points that I think investors can take as a takeaway. So number one, central banks use interest rates to try and stimulate economic growth during times of economic stress, and then to try to slow down economic growth when there are worries that inflation will get out of control. Those interest rates have influences on all parts of the economy, including on asset values. So fixed interest, as we said, moves inversely to interest rates. So prices go up when interest rates fall, and lower interest rates increase the valuation of equities. We've also talked about how we've gone through a prolonged period of falling interest rates. The returns achieved since the mid-80s have been influenced by these falls in interest rates. And the degree can be argued, but the overall direction is pretty clear. And then finally, the level of interest rates has made fixed interest in cash really unattractive right now. Many investors have responded over time by increasing their allocation to equities. With interest rates at a record low and without room to fall further, investors really need to think about what the impact will be on their investing strategy. So this can include, as you said, lower future returns, just because investors won't get that tailwind of lowering interest rates. And potentially, at some point, we'll have to face the headwind of rising interest rates. I think that's all we have today, Mark. Yeah, that was that was a lot. That was a lot. I feel like there are a lot of tongue twisters in there. Tongue twisters. Okay, yeah. No, I know you keep always telling me that English is your second language, so this must have been a, a challenge for you. Yeah, this has been an exciting one. Before we came on to the podcast, we had a microphone incident that involved me buttoning and unbuttoning my shirt multiple times, which was very exciting. But I think overall, hopefully a good and timely podcast. So I think Will, who produces our podcasts, um, I think he just didn't want to see your chest hair, mate. So. All right. Well, on that, I think we will uh, <laughs> sign off for today. So thank you guys very much for joining. Any advice is general advice prepared by Morningstar without reference to your financial objectives, situation or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest.